Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by Dole Food Company, the world's leading producer and distributor of fresh fruits and vegetables. Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio. I want to welcome members of our armed services who are tuning in from remote stations around the world. Thank you for being with us again. My guest today is former congressman and administrator of the DEA, as well as our nation's first undersecretary for border and transportation security at the U.S. Department for Homeland Security, Mr. Asa Hutchinson, will be joining us in just a moment. Before he does, as is my custom each and every week. Let me give you a little background about Mr. Hutchinson. He was born in Bentonville, Arkansas, and is a graduate of Bob Jones University and the University of Arkansas. His first work in government came as a city attorney for Bentonville two years after graduating from law school, and from here, Hutchinson rose to U.S. Attorney for the Western District of Arkansas, as well as Chairman of the State Republican uh, Committee. And in 1996, he was elected to Congress, where he served on the Judiciary and Intelligence Committees. In 2001, Hutchinson was appointed by President Bush to become the Administrator for the Drug Enforcement Administration, where he was known for tough law enforcement, but also as an equally passionate advocate for drug education and treatment. Within a couple of years, Hutchinson found himself facing a new challenge. He was confirmed as the nation's first undersecretary for border and transportation security in the newly created Department of Homeland Security. He stepped down from this post in 2005 to return to private practice. And um, there are a lot of folks who are not happy with that decision and are hoping that uh, he will return to public office again. We'll find out more about that later in the program. More recently, following the mass shooting at Sandy Hook, Hutchinson agreed to spearhead the NRA's National School Shield Program. It is my pleasure to welcome one of our foremost experts on domestic security, Mr. Asa Hutchinson. Thank you for joining us, Mr. Hutchinson. I'm glad to be with you, Rebecca. Thanks for that. I hadn't heard that uh, history myself for some time. I tell you, when people read my history, it makes me feel old. <laughs> Probably doesn't do that to you, but I, I don't know. I don't. I don't like them to give too long of a biog, a, a biography. There, uh, you know, we're going to be talking about the National School Shield program in just a moment. But Bef- before we do, it seems like every time we experience a tragedy, such as the murders at Sandy Hook or Aurora or Columbine, gun control rears its head all over again. You know, we got on the one side, we have the NRA and those that are worried that their Second Amendment rights are, are going to be threatened. And on the other side, we have folks who say, you know, you don't need a 60-round clip to hunt a deer. So you don't happen to believe that new any, any of these new gun laws are going to do much to make public places such as schools safer. Is that right? No, you could pass all of those prohibitions that you just mentioned, and there's still a risk in the schools. And so... Uh, I mean, if you uh, diminish the uh, capacity of ma- uh, ammunition magazines, uh, you're still going to have the uh, bad guys uh, getting it somewhere. If you reduce the uh, type of firearms that can be sold, you're going to have uh, enough that uh, the bad guys can get. And so there's always going to be a risk. And so, to me, uh, the greatest contribution is in the area of school safety, and that's the appropriate debate. It's Really, uh, I've been a little frustrated because uh, my focus is very narrow on the safety side, but the gun control debate has just dominated the national discussion. 
That that's right, and and it should be the other way around. We should be, first of all, there's not necessarily a connection between security and gun control, and I don't know why those two cells touch in our brains. What is that? Uh, I don't know, uh, because they are two different things. And if we would devote all of our energies and uh, all the money that Mayor Bloomberg has put into this issue, it put those resources into uh, the security side, then uh, we'd have a lot of our problems met. And, you know, if you have a, I guess, a perfect society and a perfect citizenry, then you don't have a problem with uh, criminal violators and violence uh, in the schools and other places. But we don't have that perfect society, and and so you have to have... Uh, you know, a security officer as you go into a mall. We've learned to live with that and adjust to it. We have a security officer in some theaters. Uh, and, and certainly whenever I go into the uh, network uh, studios, uh, they've got security. So it's become a part of it. And for us to say, well, they don't belong in the schools is seems a little strange to me. Well, doesn't it seem a little odd um, or telling, I guess is what I mean, that we would put an armed security guard in front of a bank to protect our dollars mm-hmm. that are insured there, but we don't want to do that in our schools? That's exactly the contrast. And sometimes I think that all of the alarm has happened because there is a political agenda for gun control, but also, you know, the NRA, quite frankly, is a lightning rod. And, uh, and you know, for example, teachers are the ones that should be the most supportive of these uh, safety and security measures. But I think the, particularly the teachers' organizations have reacted just because there is a NRA link to this. But That's I hope right. that they will really look at it more closely and, and authentically. Yeah, well, in fact, uh, uh, Wayne LaPierre, the executive vice president of the NRA, he recently testified before a Senate committee, and he, he pointed out that we already have thousands of gun laws on the books, and we're, we're not even enforcing what we already have. That's right. I've been a federal prosecutor, and uh, I've, I never had a problem with finding a, a law to prosecute someone on uh, if they uh, unlawfully used a firearm. That just hasn't been a problem. So, uh, you know, whether it's obtaining the firearm unlawfully or using it, we got plenty of laws in the books, and uh, they need to be enforced, and that's the first step. And um, uh, so, you know, there's just a lot of politics that's interwoven in this is obviously the case. Now, I know you don't like that because you want to just get down to fixing things and you don't like this back and forth uh, posing and posturing that goes on, uh, you know, talking about these thousands of laws that we have. And you say, well, look, uh, you don't have a problem finding a law if you're going to prosecute someone. And yet, statistically, prosecutions per capita on gun violations are down 35 percent in the current administration. That that's That's really disturbing. Why aren't we using the laws we've got on the books uh, that's a, a question the department of justice should address and uh it's it's those that are uh unlawfully using firearms but also uh, the uh the background checks that we talk about so much today where uh thousands of people have been declined uh for uh, obtaining a firearm because they're cannot lawfully possess one, very few of those people are even investigated or prosecuted. And so, you know, that's where uh, if you enforce those laws, then that is a deterrent for misuse. Uh, That helps to keep weapons out of the hands of uh, uh, the bad guys. Uh, But it's just, and it also, it doesn't infringe upon uh, the normal citizen who's who's having to deal with all these laws and regulations. Well, but what's your theory about why we're not enforcing? I mean, what, why is enforcement broken down? Well, uh, you know, every Justice Department sets their priorities, and so, you know, they, they'd have to look at that. Now, uh, you know, as a practical matter, uh, the U.S. Attorney's got boo-coodles on their plate, if you don't mind that expression. Yep. Uh, and, and with a concentration on terrorism, for example, uh, or immigration enforcement or whatever priority they select, uh, you, you can see that the 
priority for prosecuting people who are uh, not uh, putting the correct information down on a background check form has not been a priority. Maybe it's a resource issue. They've got other priorities, but it just illustrates the point that you can pass more laws until you have uh, the enforcement capability. All it does is burden our citizens. Because well, you're absolutely right about that. And and one thing, you know, with all the cutbacks we're now facing, I don't think enforcement's going to get any better. I think, in fact, it will probably head the other uh, direction since it's not a priority. We have to take a short commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to dive right into the National School Shield Project and uh, what schools can do to prevent and prepare for danger. You're listening to the Costa Report. This Legal Minute is brought to you by Nolan, Hammerley, Etienne, and Haas. Experienced attorneys providing professional legal services to the Central Coast for 85 years. Hello, this is attorney Stephen Wagner with your Legal Minute. Have you ever said to yourself there ought to be a law for that? Well, often there is. In today's segment, I will address the issue of both criminal and civil liability that could result from driving under the influence of street drugs and prescription drugs. That's right, prescription drugs, the ones you obtain from the pharmacy. When most people hear the term driving under the influence or driving while intoxicated, they immediately think of alcohol. After all, the slang for driving under the influence is drunk driving, and people naturally associate the word intoxication with alcohol. One other common misconception is that the term drug or drugs refers to street drugs or illegal substances. In truth, most driving under the influence laws nationwide also prohibit driving under the influence of prescription drugs. In other words, the fact that a doctor prescribed the drugs is no defense. In impaired driving cases, whether criminal or civil, the action always centers on the driver's ability or inability to safely operate a motor vehicle. Of course, most civil cases and potential lawsuits result when the impaired driver injures or kills someone or causes property damage. Victims of these crashes or collisions have the absolute right to seek monetary damages against the impaired and negligent driver. And these rights go well beyond the mere right to restitution arising out of a possible criminal case. So, is there a moral to this story? Yes, and it is simply this. Impairment comes in many forms. This is Stephen Wagner, and that's your Legal Minute. Brought to you by Nolan, Hammerley, Etienne, and Haas. Selected in 2013 as one of the top law firms in the United States by Martindale Hubble. Come one, come all to Omega News 23rd Annual Ducky Derby, Saturday, April 27th from 10.30 to 3.30 at Harvey West Park in Santa Cruz. You can adapt the duck at duckyderbysantacruz.org. Bring the kids out for fun carnival games, delicious food, great entertainment, and of course, ducky races with great prizes. 100% of proceeds benefit local Santa Cruz charities and provide scholarships to local kids. Join us rain or shine for the 23rd Annual Ducky Derby, April 27th at Harvey West Park. Sponsored by KSCO Radio and Omega News. Coast Paper and Supply has been family-owned and operated since 1948. They have a wide array of products available, including brand-name and eco-friendly cleaning supplies, paper goods, and compostable plates, cups, and cutlery. Whether your needs are for business or home, Coast Paper and Supply's friendly and reliable staff have what you're looking for. They even accommodate special orders. You can find them at 151 Josephine on River Street in Santa Cruz, Monday through Friday from 8 a.m. to 4.30, or call at 831-423-3350. Coast Paper and Supply is a proud member of Think Local First. Santa Cruz is once again proud to host Operation Surf and our nation's heroes. April 14th through the 19th, wounded active duty service members will take part in an epic life-changing experience at Cowles Beach. Through the healing power of the ocean and surfing, these wounded heroes to whom we owe so much will overcome challenges and build a new understanding of their life's potential. To learn how you can take part in this amazing event and represent our community, visit operationsurf.org or check them out on Facebook. That is all. Tune in to the Sentinel Radio Program Saturday morning at 8 a.m. right here on AM 1080 KSCO. Brought to you by First Church of Christ Scientist Monterey. Come into our Christian Science Community Reading Room and Bookstore and find comfort from the challenges you're facing. We have the resources that will connect you with your God-given substance. Find help now. Our address is 780 Abrego Street in Monterey. Reach out for this help today. Come in and visit or call 831-372-5076. 372-5076. Six.
Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is former Congressman, Administrator for the DEA, and Undersecretary at the Department of Homeland Security, who is spearheading the National School Shield Project, Mr. Asa Hutchinson. And before the break, we were discussing the fact that the gun laws we currently have are not being well enforced, so it is not likely that more laws are going to do very much to protect our children. So now let's talk about the National School Shield Project. What is it and how did you become involved? Well, I would never have anticipated it uh, five months ago, but uh, shortly after uh, the Sandy Hook tragedy, uh, the leadership of the NRA called me and said they would really like to do something to improve school safety in our country. And they saw my background in homeland security, et cetera, and they asked if I would lead that uh, national effort. And uh, we talked about it, and of course, I said, well, I uh, would have to get the uh, a good team together to do it. And so for the last four months, uh, I've utilized former Secret Service uh, leadership, former Homeland Security, uh, national law enforcement, also some recognized uh, school safety experts to do a survey across uh, the country uh, on the school safety, look at the schools, what's being done now, what can be improved. And so that's the process we went through, and that led to the report that we released this last uh, week, 252-page report with eight specific recommendations. And uh, really now the NRA takes a look at that and decides uh, whether they're going to accept it or not. Uh, I'm, they, I think they're favorably inclined. They like the direction of it, but that's a decision they'll have to make. So can you share with us some of those recommendations? Absolutely, and I would point out that uh, everybody can go on the National School Shield website, and the full report is available, and I encourage everybody to take a look at it. But the recommendations, let me give a couple principles first. Uh, One, every school is different, and so the school leadership, the local school leadership, should make the ultimate decision on security and safety. And everybody has a different variety, different composition of students. And so we're not telling them what to do. We're giving them options as to what they can do. That's right. They've got different campuses, different cultures, different curriculums, and different challenges all the way around. Absolutely. And the buildings are built at different times and designs. And then, uh, secondly, you know, there's some misconception that we're advocating that every teacher carry a firearm. Absolutely not. I use the phrase, teachers should teach and others should protect. And so uh, we're trying to improve the security of the school, not just by more school resource officers, but by, uh, you know, improving the access controls or the perimeter security. And so now let me go through a couple of the recommendations. Well, Well, let me ask you a question. If there was a teacher that wanted to be armed and wanted to be properly trained, would that be something that uh, your report would recommend that they're allowed or they're provided some kind of training? Uh, yes, it would be allowed subject to the school superintendent, of course, and uh-huh. the school leadership approving it. Uh, I don't think that's the model program, uh-huh. uh, but you first got to look at uh, whether they have currently school resource officers and a trained officer that's specific to the school environment is probably the ideal. But some schools, particularly the rural schools, do not have that capability. And the school could also determine that we have some uh, officers in the school, but we need to have more supplement to them. And so they will designate one or two additional school staff that uh, should be trained, background checks, and if they go through all of that and get the training, then they uh, could be authorized to provide additional armed protection at the school. Yeah, they might decide they want a first line of defense and a second and a third and, you know, some backups. Right. And the key, though, is that uh, eventually if you have an incident on a campus, the police are going to arrive. Yes. And so whoever has a firearm in that school needs to make sure they're trained and they have exercises with the police because you don't want the police arriving and not sure who the good guys and the bad guys are. 
So it's really a tactical issue, a uh, training issue, and it's not something that uh, someone in the school should have a firearm with two or three days or even, uh, you know, four days of training. We're recommending 40 to 60 hours of, of very clear training for that school environment. And I think you, you make a good point that uh, really there's a short amount of time in which the environment has to be controlled before professional police arrive. And so we're talking about that critical period of time before law enforcement can arrive. Oh, uh, absolutely. And it's all about the response time. Uh, in most school incidences, uh, the shooter will take his or her own life uh, and then uh, or uh, put down the gun when the police arrive or there is some armed response. Uh-huh. And so if you, if you uh, eliminate or reduce that response time, then you will save lives. And in some communities, it takes 15 minutes for the police to arrive. So they're just arriving there to uh, do the report and, uh, and assess the damage. And so if you have someone on campus that has been trained, that can respond, that knows the protocols, then uh, we believe that will save lives in the long run. Uh, another part of your uh, program, the National School Shield Project, and I'm going to ask you to give the website again toward the end of the program so people that are running right now to get a pen and pencil will have time to do so. Um, but another important part of your pro- uh, the project is uh, providing some guidelines for assessing where the security gaps might be at each school. Is that right? Uh, absolutely. And whether uh, a school wanted to hire additional school resource officers or trained uh, personnel to uh, carry a firearm, regardless of whatever they decide to do on that, you can improve school safety uh, without any cost. And that is, uh, if once we perfect this tool, uh, any school, whether it's a public school, private school, or parochial school, will be able to go on the National School Shield website and be able to, with their school leadership, go through an assessment. It'll ask questions like, how long does it take for the police to respond? What do you do when there's a stranger on campus? Do the teachers know what to do? Have they, uh, what are the access controls? Or do they wear badges for the employees? Uh, a whole host of questions. What kind of locks are on the doors? Are they inside interior locks or exterior locks? Are they, uh, uh, you know, preventable from being tampered with. And so they do their assessment as to what gaps there are in security, and that's going to be free. And then once they see gaps, we have a uh, 100 pages of best practices that's been accumulated across the country uh, from really the Department of Education, Justice, as well as the private sector uh, that uh, will help guide them as to what are the best practices and solutions that they can look at? Now, I think that's a gold mine because when you're an administrator or you're a teacher, you know, you're specializing in teaching and educating. And the fact that we now have a resource where they can go and look at what the best practices for security are is just, uh, it's a service that is uh, is just absolutely priceless. So I hope that all people, all parents and all people concerned with education and the protection of their children are listening today and will get a hold of this report. We have to take another break. And uh, when we come back, I do want to talk a little bit about background checks, but I also want to talk about how your experience in um, domestic security really prepared you to put this report together. You're listening to the Costa Report. If you're anything like me, you're getting a little worried. Debt, violence, obesity, drug use, and foreign competition are up, and education, employment, and housing are down. Is this just part of a cycle, or are these signs of something more dangerous? In the Watchman's Rattle, I describe the earliest symptoms of collapse, the same symptoms that the Mayans, Khmer, and Romans experienced, and why we could be headed down that same path. So take a moment to pick up the new paperback at any bookstore or online retailer. That's The Watchman's Rattle. Do it today.
Welcome to Automated Computer Services, America's most drawn-out tech support line. One moment, please. For our hours of op... Thank you for your application. Unfortunately, there are no openings at this time. Your username and password has been set up. Your payment of $23.69 has... Congratulations, your mother is now scheduled to be in attendance at our next set. Hi, welcome to Automated... Goodbye. Tired of unfriendly computer support? Slow computer? Viruses? Spyware? No problem. Call the friendly computer experts at User-Friendly Computing. We take care of all your PC, Macintosh, and laptop needs. Mention KSCO and get a free $50 diagnostic. Visit us today at 505 River Street on the way to downtown Santa Cruz, across from Gateway Plaza. We give you a choice. Drop your computer by the shop, or we'll come to you. Call us today at 423-9653. User-Friendly Computing. Coast Paper and Supply has been family-owned and operated since 1948. They have a wide array of products available, including brand-name and eco-friendly cleaning supplies, paper goods, and compostable plates, cups, and cutlery. Whether your needs are for business or home, Coast Paper and Supply's friendly and reliable staff have what you're looking for. They even accommodate special orders. You can find them at 151 Josephine on River Street in Santa Cruz, Monday through Friday from 8 a.m. to 4.30, or call at 831-423-3350. Coast Paper and Supply is a proud member of Think Local First. We've all heard the term baby boomer referring to those born from 1946 to 1964. There are an estimated 80 million baby boomers with the first wave hitting the Social Security and Medicare systems in recent years with more to follow. Many healthcare experts are predicting epidemics of Alzheimer's, type 2 diabetes, heart disease and cancer among this group. However, these impending epidemics can be averted, as there is a new group emerging. This group we call the baby bloomers, because despite their chronological age, they are still physically fit, active, working, and playing. They've heard Dr. Wallach's message regarding diet, lifestyle, and nutritional supplementation. So while many around them diminish in health and vitality, they are blossoming and blooming into vibrant, healthy, on-the-go people. Wouldn't you rather be a Longevity Baby Bloomer? For more information or to order, call Andy or Phyllis Anderson at 888-245-0300. That's 888-245-0300. Hello, this is Donald Davidson, the host of the Perspectives Radio Show on Saturday at 12 noon. We have a variety of programs from constitutional rights and issues to controversial alternative health views. We interview well-known authors from many walks of life, attorneys from many fields, and internationally known health doctors. So to hear a different perspective, join me, Donald Davidson, special guests, and regular guest hosts every Saturday at 12 noon for the Perspectives Radio Show, right here on KSCO. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is Mr. Asa Hutchinson. And before the break, uh, we were talking about the three areas addressed by uh, your recent report for the National School Shield Project. Uh, the first is the best practices being used at schools across the country. Uh, the second is who should be armed and also trained. And the third are, are provide guidelines for assessing the unique risks which each school can use to shore up areas where they may be vulnerable. Uh, do I have that right you said it very well perfect now, now what what other kinds of things does the national school shield project address well uh there's three audiences to our recommendations uh, one of them is the state policy makers the federal policy makers and then uh, the nra uh, and so in terms of the state i don't believe in heavy-handed mandates but i do believe that the state education system can make safety and security a higher priority and not telling the local schools what to do but by saying it's imperative that every school have an assessment of their own security and have a security plan in place those simple requirements will give the local school the uh, impetus to go out and go online at our website or other resources and professionals to do their assessments and improve their security. So that's the state direction. And in terms of the uh, federal audience, uh, I don't believe the federal government is consist as a good, reliable partner in funding school safety. Uh, they started out funding the Cops in the Schools program. It died out, and the uh, federal funding lapsed. Uh, 
they don't have enough money, and so the schools, uh, the local schools, are absorbing those costs. And I don't think we should reverse that pattern. The federal government, if they're going to spend any money, it should be in training grants to the states. It should be in innovation grants to uh, maybe have mental health pilot projects, one of the things that we recommend in our report as well. Uh, so that's their role. And then if you'll give you another question, I'll, I'll talk about the role of the NRA long term and what we're recommending for them. Well, Here's I just want to go on record as saying one thing, Mr. Hutchinson, and that is, you know, when it comes to the safety of our children, I don't really care where the money comes from, and I don't care if it comes from the NRA. And anybody listening today that uh, makes that their issue, you know, when the NRA steps forward and says to you, whatever it takes, you know, whatever amount of money, whatever it takes, we've got to make our children safe. Um, you know, I don't care what people's feelings are about the NRA. Take the money and run. Well, uh, and this is a long-term serious commitment, uh, at least it's been expressed to me that way, and, I, and all indications are that this is uh, something they wanted to be doing for the long haul. And That's so right. our, our recommendations uh, would make the National School Shield Initiative a permanent program that would be a uh, private sector initiative to support uh, safety in our in our school systems across America. They would do that by maintaining this web-based assessment tool, and you've got to always update it. And then, if you have a, uh, a help desk response capability, where a school could call in and talk to technical experts uh, and and have greater resources in in uh, that way, sponsored by the National School Shield. Well, you're absolutely right about that because just in terms of technology and what's available and best practices, those things are going to evolve. There's always going to be a better practice. And so you really do need uh, to look at this over the long term. So I, I think you're absolutely correct. You know, when you were charged with overseeing the DEA, you recognized pretty early on that this was a complex problem and it had to be attacked on multiple fronts. And, and you were known to be tough on enforcement, but you were also very... Very committed to making treatment and education available. And, you know, you, you kind of looked at all of these as levers attached to one machine. And it, and it really feels to me like you've brought that experience to school safety where you're tacking the problem from enforcement, education, and even treatment. Uh, I know that you've been very concerned about the mental illness that precedes these incidences. Uh, absolutely. Uh, the Secret Service did a report after Virginia Tech that indicated 72% of the assailants in a school uh, assault, 72% of them believe they had been intimidated or bullied uh, while uh, in the school system. Now, that doesn't excuse anything, but it does tell you that if a school can create a climate where there's not antisocial behavior, where there's not this bullying without any recourse, then that has a good potential of reducing uh, the potential for threats and violence. And so it has to have that mental health component. They call it a threat assessment, but it's really one, you have to have the right culture in the school so that people feel comfortable in going to help where if you see a specific threat, counselors have to determine whether it's credible, uh, whether it's reflecting a uh, abuse situation in the school, what kind of action should they take, what kind of mental health plan, and also whether it should be referred to law enforcement. So that kind of team we're recommending being piloted in various schools, uh, and hopefully the NRA will look at piloting a, f a few of those uh, uh, mental health projects in the school, as well as the other tools that we've mentioned. Well, I, I will tell you that one of the largest responses I've ever had was a editorial I wrote for USA Today about the fact that long before these mass murderers went looking for a weapon, they lost their will to live. And that uh, violence is really a, a byproduct of a much larger and much more difficult problem. We, we now have antidepressants as the most prescribed drug in the United States. And the biggest jump has been among preschoolers and adolescents. 
and and and, and even more troubling is that uh, worldwide the number of suicides have increased about 60 percent in the last 40 years so we have young people that are losing their will to live and i am very concerned i know i speak for a lot of folks here that we are going to see many disturbing symptoms as a result of this how do we how do we go to the heart of the problem which i i am convinced is not guns i think that's the red herring absolutely and uh i was joined uh when we announced our report by mark mattioli who is a the father of of james mattioli who was uh, one of the uh, Sandy Hook Elementary School students that uh, was killed mm-hmm. uh, in December. And Mark joined me, and he uh, won. He says, thank goodness somebody's talking about school safety. Uh, and that's why he wanted to be there and hear this. But secondly, he was extraordinarily concerned about the mental health component and what we we're doing in that regard. It goes much deeper. And I'm not an expert on it, but clearly, uh, whether it's the violent video games, whether it is uh, medication, or whether it is the behavior at schools, this has to be addressed from a national perspective. We've got a different kind of killer on our hands. I mean, you know, when uh, John Wilkes Booth shot Lincoln, he didn't try to shoot up the Ford's Theater. And even very disturbed individuals like Charles Manson or uh, Son of Sam, at least their instinct to try to hide or get away was intact. Mm-hmm. What we have is a killer now who doesn't care, doesn't try to get away. Their 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 instinct, their survival instinct has broken down. And that's a different kind of animal. Oh, right. They've made up their mind that they're going to uh, take others' lives and their life, and, uh, and it is of no consequence to them. And to uh, think that it's an intentional act on their part is beyond comprehension to me. I don't understand that mindset. Uh, well, I, I agree with you. And and so one of the things I want to ask you about, we're going to take another short break here, but I, I took a lot of flack, and I'm not at all sure, by the way, that I'm right about this, but I, I felt like if we are dealing with a different type of killer and these people can hold it together for short amounts of time in civil, you know, in our society and before they really act out in a terrible way, that maybe we needed to extend the background checks. And boy, did I get catch hell for that. <laughs> You're probably laughing on the other end here, but uh, uh, I, I caught a lot of flack for that. So I'd like to, uh, when we come back, I'd like to ask you if I if I was wrong, because I, I got a feeling maybe I was based on the reaction I got. You're listening to the Costa Report. Are you looking for fresh, creative, and healthy ideas to bring to your table? Hi, I'm Amy Tobin, a cookbook author and culinary expert. Dole makes it easy to eat the right foods with their wide selection of salad blends and all-natural salad kits. Whether it's Sunday night family dinner or a lunchtime indulgent with your favorite salad ingredients, let your culinary imagination soar with more than 30 varieties of salad blends that range from sweet and subtle to zesty and bold. For the ultimate in fresh convenience, try Dole's all-inclusive salad kits with farm-fresh lettuces, crunchy vegetables, and all-natural Dole specialty dressings and toppings. To learn more about Dole salads and for inspiring recipe ideas, visit Dole.com slash salads or like Dole Salad Guide on Facebook. With so many delicious and convenient choices, it's easy to find nutritious inspiration with Dole salads. I'm here today with Scott Caraccioli of Caraccioli Cellars. Now, there's a number of ways you can taste wines at the tasting room. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, we currently have nine different wines on our tasting menu, and we really want it to be an experience where you get to taste the wine that you want to taste. So if you want to taste Pinot, you can really focus your flight around that. If you wanted to focus on... The bubbles, we have three different sparklings that will allow you to build your flight that way. Or if you came in and you just wanted to taste one wine, we would uh, have it set up for you to be able to do that as well. Now, what's a flight? A flight is basically a combination of small tastes of different wines. If you wanted to taste all of our different Chardonnays, you could taste the 2007 Chardonnay, the 2008, and the 2009, and we would line you up with an individual taste of each of them. 
Thank you for being with us again, Scott. Thank you, Rebecca. Ace is the place. Ace Hardware Stores, ladies and gentlemen, located in Watsonville, Freedom, Marina, Salinas, and Gilroy. These are the five Ace Hardware Stores run by my friends Manuel and Carlos Rodriguez, two brothers in Watsonville who've been on the hardware business for 25 years, long enough to know that when you walk into a hardware store, you want service. You know the merchandise is there, but you don't want to have to walk up and down the aisles for God knows how long to try to locate it. You want somebody to walk up to you and say, hi, welcome to Ace Hardware. What brought you to us today? You give the answer, and the next thing you know, you're in the right part of the store looking at the merchandise you want to see. That's the service you get at Ace Hardware stores in Watsonville on Main Street, in Freedom, corner of Green Valley Road and Freedom Boulevard, in Marina on Reservation Road, in Salinas on North Sanborn, and in Gilroy on First Street. These are the five Ace Hardware stores that Rodriguez Brothers run, and those are the ones you want to go to. That's the place you'll get what you want every single day. Monday through Friday, 8 to 8. Saturday and Sunday, 8 to 6. Ace Hardware, your ace in the hole. The original Stagnero family has been in business since 1879. The Stagnero name stands for quality, quantity, and great service. The family's Gilda's Restaurant on the Santa Cruz Municipal Wharf is still the fishing headquarters of the Santa Cruz area. It's where fishermen gather each morning for coffee and breakfast before heading out on the bay. Stop by Gilda's and say hi. Dino looks forward to meeting you at Gilda's on the center of the Santa Cruz Municipal Wharf. It's finally here, a brand new talk show discussing everything surfing and skateboarding. Tuesday evenings from 7 to 8 p.m. right here on AM 1080 KSCO. Off the Lip is hosted by local surf writer Neil Pearlberg and skateboard aficionado Terry Campion. Become involved by calling in to chat with their many guests, get up-to-the-minute surf and skate news, and win prizes in their weekly trivia contest. It's the Santa Cruz surf and skate scene on Off the Lip. Tuesday evenings from 7 to 8 p.m. right here on AM 1080 KSCO. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is former Congressman Asa Hutchinson. And before the break, I was talking about the fact that sometimes it takes a while for unstable behavior to come out. And so I had suggested some time ago that maybe we need to look at extending background check periods so that there's really time to evaluate the mental stability of an individual. So, Congressman, am I am I on the wrong track here? Probably. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, you know, the background checks, I mean, the gut instincts of all Americans is uh, that's appropriate because we don't want to have convicted felons uh, buying a firearm or someone who's been adjudicated as mentally incompetent. And so uh, that's uh, an important background check that everybody generally supports. Uh, Including the NRA, by the way. Right. Yeah. Uh, certainly, the, the NRA understands that. Now, so what's so, so wrong about taking our time to check someone out? Well, uh, because uh, I remember going on a, uh, a hunting trip, and I didn't have a uh, shotgun, and I had to go buy one, and I didn't want to wait three days <laughs> or whatever the time of evaluation is. And so, But I'm sure you'd wait three days if it was going to make our... Uh, you know, a safer it's safer for people in public places, right? I mean, you know, I, I realize everyone would be inconvenienced, but sometimes that's the price, isn't it? Well, I, I mean, what are you supposed to wait for? Are you waiting to watch their behavior, or? Uh, well, I'm just thinking that maybe you have a you know some kind of a period, like almost a probationary period, where if uh, if the police are called to your house for domestic abuse charge, or uh, if you're uh, I don't know pulled aside for something, I, I don't know. You could have some standards there because people that are unstable they tend to have incidences over several months. You know what I mean? They can't. They they might be able to hold it together for a week or two, but not not very long. Um, well, I mean, that's one good reason to make sure that if they have a history of domestic violence or, uh, uh, you know, they have a record, then that hopefully will pop up in the national instant uh, check system. Uh, but the only other way is to say, we're going to wait a while to see if there's some incident or there's some erratic behavior, mm-hmm. or you're going to wait six months. and. I, I believe that is a, a, an unfair 
while you might accomplish something, it's still a huge burden on the average citizen who's trying to exercise their Second Amendment privilege in, in purchasing a firearm. Yeah, I've had listeners call me and say, well, you're basically putting people who want to get a weapon to protect themselves at a disadvantage. You know, uh, you're har- you're harming them uh, because criminals don't have any waiting period and they can get any arms they want. Yeah, there's a lot of reasons. Uh, you know, I went... Uh, backpacking in Alaska. Uh, my wife didn't want me just to have a whistle to protect myself from the grizzly bears. So we went out and, you know, got a firearm and it, you know, I didn't, it would have been difficult to have to wait. I'm not a good planner that would do that six months in advance. So, uh, you know, I, I'm not inclined toward that at all. In fact, in Congress, whenever we instituted the instant check system and one of the key things was it is instantaneous and also that once the check is done the uh, record is uh, gone so that there's not some international or national database on who's purchasing firearms so our citizens are very sensitive about the records about the uh, burdens and how that background check system works as you well know because your callers have expressed that yes Yes, and uh, and they don't like that I I su- even suggested that we might have a little longer period of time. Um, um, so how about the these loopholes about sale of guns at gun shows and that kind of thing? Uh, as I understand it, the, there are no background checks in certain kinds of gun transactions. Is that right? Uh, that's correct. Uh, right now, uh, if you're purchasing a firearm at a store or even at a gun show where there's a licensed uh, uh, federal firearms dealer, then they will do the background check. Mm -hmm. But there's all these casual sales that, you know, you might uh, get a firearm from a neighbor, Uh, you might uh, be at a gun show and and, uh, somebody have one out in their car and they sell it there. And so there's, they call them the gun show loopholes or there's there's some gaps in in our check system. Now, the challenge is, of course, how in the world can you close some of those gaps without uh, being unreasonable about it or placing unreasonable burdens? And I think about if you're in uh, uh, southern Arkansas, you might be uh, 30 miles from town. Mm-hmm. And your neighbor wants to buy your uh, shotgun. Well, if you have a universal check, you've got to drive into town uh, 30 miles, uh, find a dealer, do the check, pay some money, and go back home. Now, one, there's going to be a lot of people that just don't do it and ignore the requirement. Uh, but then also, uh, those uh, neighbor transactions, it's uh, it's an imposition on them. And so are we accomplishing the objective, I think, is the debate. And, and how can we uh, improve the background check system without being unreasonable about it? Well, I'm glad you straightened me out because uh, maybe I will get a few thousand less complaints when we're done with this show, <laughs> for how dare uh, I even suggest a longer period. Um, you know, one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, as a lawyer, you know that the once you start putting uh, guns, even with uh, trained officers on uh, on elementary schools, I mean, even professionals have mistakes, mm-hmm. and, uh, and at some point, uh, you know, a teacher or a child is injured, and there's going to be a massive backlash and public outcry. So I, I was wondering, why aren't we concerned Considering maybe less lethal methods, maybe tasers or even uh, tranquilizer guns, they'll take down a, a you know a, a bear, a grizzly bear. Um, it, it, aren't there just other non-lethal ways we can disarm these perpetrators and, and that would pose maybe less danger and liability? Uh, yes, indeed, and uh, that's certainly something that is being utilized in some environments. Uh, for example, I uh, toured the. Uh, Los Angeles Unified School District and met with their school uh, uh, school police officers and they have non-lethal uh, uh, weapons or, or instruments that they can use as well as a whole host of uh, real firepower if they need it. And so there's a variety of, of tools that can be used by uh, trained officers and the non-lethal certainly can be a part of it. But of course, uh, whenever you're dealing with uh, an active shooter, which is the worst circumstance, you need to have uh, uh, a firearm that can take them down. If you're mm-hmm. dealing with somebody in the student environment, 
that uh, is threatening with a knife or something else. Certainly, the non-lethal is something that should be considered. And if I can tell you what, you know, contrast Los Angeles, where I went with Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. In Philadelphia, in every high school, the students, every student goes through a magnetometer before they go to the classroom. No kidding. So obviously they have a problem, but they do not allow the school resource officers to carry a firearm in the schools. So what do they carry? Well, non-lethal weapons, a baton perhaps, and a radio to call for backup. Mm -hmm. And so that's an example of where that's a decision that Philadelphia made. We're not trying to change it. We're saying... That's a decision you make. You're dealing with magnetometers. Now, that doesn't help with the active shooter circumstance from the outside, but that's a decision they made. So we're trying to give them more tools, uh, even in that environment. Well, we're almost out of time here, believe it or not. So I want to be sure that people get that website again on how they can find out about the National School Shield Project. It's the uh, National School Shield website. You just put in those names and the website will pop up and you'll see my pretty face there, joking. <laughs> and uh, But you'll have the links to go to the actual report and I encourage people to read it. There's about a 20-page uh, summary that has the findings and recommendations and then you've got uh, the appendices, which is uh, fairly lengthy, but including the best practices. But I encourage people to look at that, and particularly if you have doubts about it, I hope they'll read it. And now, how about all the people that are going to be emailing me and saying, listen, uh, we like Asa Hutchinson, and we want him to go back into public service. How do they keep tabs on your activities, and uh, when are you coming back? <laughs> well, tell everybody to stay tuned. I needed to finish this project, but uh, I'm looking at running for governor of Arkansas in 2014. Well, so the rumors are all true. <laughs> Rumors are more than rumors. Well, that is fantastic. Um, and and do you have a website that they can go to to keep tabs on that governorship? Uh, not yet, but it will be coming up. Again, like I said, I've uh, hesitated jumping there until I finish this, but it'll be coming online uh, later this month, and I hope people will check it out. Well, I hope they will, too. That's our program for today. I want to thank you for joining us and for your public service, and we'll look forward to hearing more about your run for the governorship. Thank you, Mr. Hutchinson. Thank you, Rebecca. If your station is leaving us after this hour, my guest next week will be here to talk about a different kind of threat. John Densmore, drummer of one of the founder and one of the founders of The Doors, he'll be here to talk about his court battle to prevent Jim Morrison's legacy from being exploited for commercial purposes. That's John Densmore that next week, right here on your favorite weekly news program. Now stay tuned for the second hour of the Costa Report. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 